beginning in verse 23 there. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Lord, we ask for your spirit this afternoon to be upon us in such a way that our minds would be freed from the distractions that come from the world and cares of the world, family matters and friends and the like. And that we would be able to focus, hear what you would have us to hear this afternoon, knowing that your word, when it is preached and when it is read, has its perfect effect and that you'd do what you set out for your word to do. And so we ask praying and knowing with full confidence and assurance that you will do this for us because you've promised that that's what the purpose of your word is. So, Lord, we thank you in advance for the word that you're about to give to us, and we pray that it would have its effect of helping us to know you and love you more, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, as we kind of come to the end of chapter 9, it it isn't the end of the writer's thought by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it certainly does wrap up in a bow nicely some of the things that he has been saying up to this point. Now up to this point, what the writer of Hebrews has largely been doing has been contrasting the old way of doing things with the new covenant, the old with the new. And the reason is, of course, is because the Hebrew Christians in Rome at this time were under persecution and they were feeling that tug back to the old, back to that which was familiar, back to that which they endured less persecution than they were enduring now as Christians. But the writer of the Hebrews has been constantly pointing back saying, this is old and done away with, this is inferior, this is something that you don't need to go back to because you have that which is greater 
and the fulfillment of what these old things were actually pointing to in the person of Jesus Christ. So you have the inferior, you have the copies, you have the old contrasted with the new. Today, me, Andy and I were sitting there and we were scrolling through the social stuff and uh, she came across this little thing and it was just hilarious and it talked about inferior products. Products made in other countries that were tried to pass off as the original and accurate thing. And these were mostly toys and they were funny and silly and you have this one and it's a little box and it looks like Optimus Prime, one of the Transformers. But the title of the toy is Franz Traumers. <laughs> That's Franz Traumer. And just changing two letters and here now you can sell this. One was Avengers the Age of Ultron and then in the package was Superman. So... Of course, you find these inferior things, and they're funny, and we laugh at them, and, and we, you know, find the humor in them. But the truth is, is that when it comes to things that actually matter, we don't want that which is inferior to be the thing that motivates us, that attracts us. We want the real thing, and that's what Christ is here, and that's what the writer of Hebrews lays out in this passage here. So if you're taking notes, and you're jotting this down, there are three things that Christ does in this passage for his own people. Three things that Christ does. And then there is a contrast to three things that the old covenant provided that were inferior. But as we go through, let me give you the three things that Christ does first. He gives, first of all, he entered into the presence of God on our behalf. Second of all, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. And third of all, he will return for all who are his. So let's jump in. First of all, verse 23, thus. Meaning, he was referring back to something that he's already talked to. So last week, excuse me, we looked at this truth that we find in verses 21 and 22. And in the same way, he, Christ, sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels, pardon me, not Christ, Moses, all the tent and the blood used for worship. And indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's the context where the writer jumps into verse 23. Thus, because blood is required... If anything is going to be purified, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The blood of bulls and goats, the blood of doves and rams, the blood of animals could never ever actually atone for sin because there is no moral character in that animal that animal is not in the image of God and we when we commit sin against God we are sinning against God and against the very nature of God that is within us so therefore, if a sacrifice is going to purify me as an image bearer of God, it needs to be by the hands or by one who is himself an image bearer of God as well. 
all the blood of bulls and goats and all of these old rites and rituals that the text talks about, all they could do was be a point of contact for your faith in God because he said, if you do this, you will be forgiven. They in themselves couldn't do it because Christ's one sacrifice, listen, Christ's one sacrifice is so multifaceted that it took all of the entirety of the Old Testament rituals and regulations to point to his singular work. Christ's atonement and Christ's sacrifice, Christ's work, not only on the cross but all throughout his life, was so robust and so, like I said, multifaceted that the entirety of the Old Testament ritualistic system had to be set up by God to point to how magnificent Jesus is. All of those things, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and everything else that came before and after that all pointed to an aspect of Christ and never did it perfectly because they were still all types and shadows of that which was to come. So even the most intricate studies that were available of Old Testament rites and rituals never got anyone right with God and never even completely got anyone to see that Christ was who he said he was, right? How many times in the Gospels do the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they rebuke him for certain things that he's doing? They question him because of things that he said. When then the truth of the matter is, all of those things that they had dedicated their entire life to study were the very things that were designed by God to point to Christ himself. The Old Testament is so rich, it is so vast, it is so worth our study and important that we go back and do that so that we don't fall into the trap of minimizing Christ, of thinking of his sacrifice as just the ticket that gets me punched into heaven. We need to realize how important it is of Christ having fulfilled all of this Old Testament work and more even that we, when we look back and we see and we read in the Old Testament all of these things they had to do, we sit back and we bask in the glory and grandeur of God that he would give us such a Savior as Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats and rites and rituals and Moses sprinkling blood on this thing and that artifact and on this person and over on this book could never, ever, 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 ever atone for sins, beloved. Because the heavenly things were what mattered. Here on this earth, it was all copies. But there were true, better realities in heaven whereby Christ went and offered himself before the very Father. The heavenly things themselves were made better with better sacrifices than these. Now, the, the, first, the implication might be, as we think through this, well, okay. So these things that people built, people built. So therefore, they were flawed in some sense. They weren't holy in and of themselves because people built them. 
So that's why Moses had to come along and do the hyssop and the wool and the blood and the sprinkling kind of thing to sanctify those things, set those apart for sacred, holy temple worship, right? So what in heaven could possibly be of an inferior quality that requires Christ's blood to sanctify it, right? It would seem like that's kind of what he's getting at here, but I don't think that's the point of this at all. What he's saying here is all of the copies of these things on earth that symbolized a truth in heaven. Don't, no, wait, wait, wait. Let me back up a second. I don't want anybody to think that there's actually like a holy of holies in heaven. And there's another Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And there's another altar of incense in heaven. And that there's a, te- a veil up in heaven that only... I guess God himself can go through and only then what, you know, what we don't want to do is we don't want to say there's a one-to-one correspondence. The reason they were copies is because they symbolized a truth that is of God in heaven, that is about God in heaven, that is about Christ and the work that he was going to come and do. So when heavenly things themselves are made better with these sacrifices, it means that everything that heaven was intended for, namely the bringing in of the kingdom of God, Eden, reborn, was made available and made accessible and made right because of Christ's death and his atonement for our sins. So the reason that they're better is because they were intended by God for his kingdom to be there in his presence in worship forever. And it happens because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for our sins. The blood of bulls and camels, well not camels, the blood of bulls and goats and rams could never atone for those kind of things, right? The camel wouldn't do it either. (laughs) For, verse 24, Christ, here's our number one point. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So Christ, if you know, you know, certain old catechisms, Apostles' Creed, it talks about Christ descending into hell. Here it says he entered into heaven itself. Now there's that passage in Hebrews, pardon me, in Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about Christ descending. There's that passage in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 where it talks about Christ preaching to those who are in prison and we there's some people who kind of think and I'm, I, I'm, I certainly don't want to quibble over it but I'm certainly inclined to think that what Christ did is upon his death went down and he presented himself before all of those who had died in faith in Christ kind of an Abraham's bosom kind of thing right there in Luke where Jesus is talking about there's two separate places in the afterlife. One is a place of torment and one is a place of rest, awaiting the Messiah to come. And Christ goes down and takes all of those who had by faith lived for God and lived in the light that God had given them, trusting God, 
not trusting all of their works, but trusting God to save them, and takes those people and brings them into his heaven. And while he's doing that, he's also proclaiming for all times and triumphing over those demonic elements and those people who have fallen and have never received by faith anything that God had promised and were now suffering just reward for their actions displaying himself as king not only of the people who he was bringing into his heaven, but as God and just God over those who had rejected God's revelation. And upon taking them into heaven, he goes into heaven and does not only bring these people, like he said to the thief on the cross there upon the cross, today you will be with me in paradise But he also presents himself in the presence of God the Father as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, there are so many things that are like this in Scripture, aren't there? Meaning, things that we read about and we go, why isn't there a whole book on this? (laughs) Why isn't there like seven, eight chapters in Romans on this, right? Because, man, this is the kind of thing that we want to know about. What in the world did Christ do? What was that like? We want to hear, you know, when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, or the widow's named son came back, or Lazarus was raised from the dead. Why isn't there the book of First Lazarus, where he tells us, hey, here's what it was like when I was dead. Heaven is for real, dude. One of those kind of books kind of thing, right? But we don't have those things. And Jesus actually keys us into this there at the end of that story of Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospel of Luke when he says, look, even if somebody were to come back from the dead and tell you about all these things that pertain to the dead, you are not going to believe unless you believe the Bible and what it already says about God. You won't be persuaded. You might be moved a step closer. You might even be moved a step further away. But you will not be persuaded because God has already given you his revelation in toto, in full. So while there's a sense where we want a little bit more information, let's be honest. As Christians, we are thoroughly satisfied and overjoyed with the revelation we have because it teaches us that Christ appeared in heaven. And we don't need those details now because he appeared before the presence of God on our behalf. Now, we already looked at this two two weeks, two weeks ago. Who's the R? It's all those who were called and redeemed. Okay? I'm not going to go retread that ground. But he came to appear before the presence of God. The presence of God. This is one of those things in scripture that when you encounter as you're reading somebody who actually comes into the presence of God they are undone of course I use the word from Isaiah he literally says he was undone they fall down as dead people Daniel right chapter 12 Falls down as if he were a dead man. John in the Revelation. A couple of times falls down. Because he is so undone by the very presence of God. If you have in your mind at all. 
heaven being the whole sitting on a cloud playing a harp <laughs> kind of thing. I had in Bible college a, a teaching taught to me where that in, in heaven we're going to be God's secret agents. And that we're going to be throughout all of eternity going all over the universe and like infiltrating all of these other, I don't know where these people come from or these other beings, but we're going to be infiltrating all these other societies, bringing holiness and righteousness to them. I don't think that's right. And there's lots of other ideas in between about heaven. If we don't have as the very pinnacle and the very glorious apex of what heaven is being, we get to be in the presence of God, then you are missing what heaven is about. And that that's might be hard to understand. I have a little gif on my phone. It's one I send to Andy from time to time, and it just says, I just want to sit and watch something with you. That's cute. But the whole point is what? It isn't that I want to watch something with you, right? It's I want to be with you. And whatever we do is cool because I'm with you. And I like to just be with her, and she likes to just be with me. We can be together and doing completely different things, but as we are together, there's something absolutely joyful about being in the presence of the person who loves me the most in this world, and that I love the most in this world. Presence matters, right? I want to be around the people who I love and the people who love me. I want to be around them all the time, and I like their presence around me. And sometimes it isn't even just talking and sharing and teaching. It's just being together and hanging out that matters. Heaven is the greatest presence with anybody because we are in the presence of God forever. And you might say right now, but, but I have the spirit within me. Aren't I in the presence of God right now? Yes, technically, but isn't there something about you just want to be there? And I love Jesus. And I want to hug him. I want to stand before the throne that is, that there's painstaking words written down in the scripture trying to under, explain what it is that they're seeing that doesn't make any sense. And I want to stand before that throne and I want to see God and I want to see him just like he is and I want to be there in his presence and I want him, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to see his eyes, as it were, light up because he has saved me from my dead, my trespasses, my sins, and now I am an object of his love, his grace, his affection because he sent his son to die for me. I want him. I want Jesus. I want to be in the presence of God. And in order to get me there, where I am going to be someday, Jesus had to go there first. On my behalf. He entered 
the presence of God, he went there and offered himself for Patrick Mathers. That's crazy. I'm a nobody. I don't impress any, I, I'm a, I know, I don't impress people. The foolish things of the world are what God uses to confound the wise, though, isn't it? And he's seen fit to send his son to die for me and to come before his presence on my behalf. That is crazy. Absolutely remarkable, amazing, wonderful love. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with his blood, not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Point number two is that Christ sacrificed himself for our behalf. But first of all, he talks about how the, the inferiority of what Jesus replaced was a priesthood where the high priest would enter every single year with blood and not even his own blood. If we are going to be righteous, let's say sacrifices actually did something for us positively we still are left with the sins that we actually commit throughout our lives. And therefore, the high priest would have to continually, repeatedly, every year. Christ would have to continually, every year, if he was atoning for our sins in this way, under this old covenant. It would just simply never end. But Christ is so much better. He has appeared once for all. Listen, beloved. The Catholic Church is kind of on its heels right now. Because of a whole lot of sin that's been going on in that church for a whole long time. A part of the problem of that is the re-sacrificing of Christ. Over and over and over repeatedly. Now, you know me, I, I hate this, the, I don't like the stuff that we have. We rent the building, we have these things that are here. The reason why Christ is still on that cross here is because Christ is being re-sacrificed over and over and over every single time that you get together and his atonement is never completed, which is why our cross, I can look right here at our communion elements, doesn't have Christ on it. The crucifix is not something that we use in our worship. That's why we have communion down here and not up there. If you understand the symbolism of the setup here, the pulpit is to the side here in this particular setting because it gives way to the body and blood of Christ because he is still being sacrificed because you are not yet atoned for and you don't even know if you will be in this life. So therefore, this is where worship happens, not here in the book. You notice we set it up differently. It's a music stand. I don't need anything more than that. The word of God is what matters. And this points us to the gospel of Christ. Communion points us to the gospel. 
Communion points us to the finished work of Christ, not to an inferior, incomplete work of Christ that still needs to be repeated over and over and over and over ad nauseum. You see, we don't need priests to enter sacrifice for us over and over and over again because Christ has already done this and he's already done it. Notice at the end of the ages, meaning that this is complete. History's complete with the person of Christ. He has done all of his work and there's one thing yet to do, which I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're going to get there here in a minute. But it's to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Kind of toying with going through 1 John next after this. But I kind of want to do an Old Testament. But while you're turning there, turn 1 John 3. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. There is no sin. He appeared, if you look down at verse 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. Christ appeared at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He, like I said earlier and hinted at earlier, had, if any person ever had the image of God upon himself, it was Jesus Christ, right? It helps to be God in the flesh. (laughs) So when he came and sacrificed his own life, for mine, he could literally put away my sins. Now, if he was only human, he could only do that for one person, being perfect. But this is why God himself came down and took on flesh. Because being God in flesh, he could endure the wrath of God for all of the sins of all of the people that he would ever redeem, not just one individual. It's very important to know who Jesus is, to know who God is. In fact, it's probably the most important thing, isn't it? Because if we know God and we know Jesus rightly, then we're going to understand ourselves and our own sacrifice, or pardon me, his own sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus doesn't have to go into some secret place. He doesn't have to go and perform some secret rituals because he has already accomplished his atonement. We don't have to perform some secret rites and rituals because he has already provided our atonement. And in him and him alone, he has given us all the satisfaction that God requires for those who would be a part of his kingdom, those who would be in his heaven forever. Namely, his righteousness. The atonement was the climax of all of the previous ages. Everything pointed forward to Christ's atonement. 
So first of all, Christ entered God's presence on our behalf. Second of all, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. And finally, he will return for all who are his. Christ will return for all who are his. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. First of all, you have one life to live. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. There is no such thing as a reincarnation. You get one go-through. And even this go-through that you have is not your own. Your life is not your own. It is God's. And he gave it to you. And you exist because he decided you would exist right now. You live because he determined that you would live. You live because by his will and his decree you live right now. And you have this one life to live. And even that is not your own. You are God's no matter what. And if you do not repent and turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior, after this comes the judgment for your rebellion against him. You take your life that he gave you and you rebel against the very God who gave you that life? You think you're not going to get judged? You're high. (laughs) That's not how this works. God gave you life, and your life is not your own. And he does require, at your expense, your life given back to him. And he has every right to do that. That's the negative. That's the warning, right? This is what he's telling these Hebrew Christians that are thinking about leaving Christianity. It wasn't called that then. It's called the way. It was called Christ's disciples. You know, it wasn't called Christianity yet. But that's what's taking place here. They are struggling as Christians. They are struggling as disciples of Christ. And they are thinking, this is too hard. I'm going to go back to what I used to know. Or something that kind of commingles the two together. And that will make me feel like I'm right with God. But yet at the same time, I still have all of my old stuff that I was very comfortable with. And he says to them, you have one life. And that's it. Don't waste it and turn away from God and receive his judgment for your rebellion. Instead, Christ, he has been offered once to bear the sins of many and he is going to appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Save those who are eagerly awaiting him. My background is kind of regular evangelical fundamentalism. So I'm pretty familiar with those who are eagerly waiting for him, in a sense. There are a lot of people that are awaiting his return in something called a rapture where he comes back and he only takes a certain group of people, those who believe in him right now, to his heaven and leaves the rest of the world to kind of fall into chaos for some time. 
And during that time of chaos, various people arise to power and oppress other people and sin is allowed to run rampant and there's, depending upon your interpretation, demons running around the world or black helicopters mowing people down kind of thing. And so during that time, there's some people who remembered, oh yeah, God took some people away and man, I should believe in him now too. And then they believe in him and then they're either martyred for their faith or they just go out in the woods and hunker down with some barrels full of rice and kernels of wheat. And they make it through as survivalists, right? Living off the land, eating the wheat in the barrel. And then Christ returns and he establishes his thousand year reign That's the modern, regular, typical, evangelical way of looking at this. But there's none of that here. You have to read into this text to get that. Christ is going to return a second time and not to deal with sin. Meaning he's not going to atone for sin anymore. He's already done it. Instead, he's going to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. The rapture and the second coming is all at the same time, folks. There isn't like some secondary little thing where he's going to keep some people here for some time and, oh, it's going to happen and, you know, you better gather your guns and hoard them because you don't know. Christ is going to come back and he's going to take his own to his heaven to be with him and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats to use Matthew 23, 24, 25, Matthew 25's language. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is already in heaven. And as citizens of that kingdom, of that nation, of that people group, we await the return of our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he's going to take us to be with him in his heaven, and he's going to make us fit for that kingdom. That's what it means, transform our lowly bodies. He's going to make us fit for his heaven. In Romans chapter 8, says, for consider the sufferings of this present time. Right? This is the whole argument of Hebrews. You're suffering in this present time right now? Well, do this. Consider the sufferings of this present time. They are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Adam, because of him who subjected it. In hope, we're eagerly longing, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, and it will also obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, redemption of our bodies. Is that your hope? You see, we believe Christ entered into the presence of God, and now that's where our hope lies, right? All of this, this talk of Christ returning to save us and bring us to himself that we are eagerly waiting for is really God taking us through Jesus Christ into his very own presence. The gospel doesn't end with you getting saved and you getting into, you know, getting his righteousness. The gospel ends with you in his heaven rejoicing and worshiping him in pure bliss forever. So he writes to the Hebrews and he says, what are you going to go to? (laughs) What are you possibly going to turn to? Copies of the heavenly things? A sacrifice that has to continue on infinitum? Your one life is now and you're going to go back and live in rebellion against him and suffer his judgment? Beloved, what's offered to you, what's here before you is Christ entering into God's presence on your behalf, having sacrificed himself for your sins to complete your atonement, and he will return to take you into his heaven. Quit mucking about with foolish things. There's nothing better than Christ and his glorious work. There's nothing better than God and his heaven. And that's what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen, beloved. Father God, we pray that you would take these truths and that our hearts would be gripped by them, Lord. Frankly, it's far too easy to get caught up in the minutiae and the mundane of each and every day that we live through and not be just absolutely enthralled with the prospect of your salvation for us and the promise that you will bring us into your heaven to be with you forever. Lord, may we, may we, may we meditate on that this week and be moved to thoughts of joy and peace and hope knowing that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete that work and that you didn't just save us to leave us vulnerable and leave us left to our own devices but you saved us and you are saving us so that you will save us in the future and take us into your presence Jesus Thank you, Lord, and we thank you, and we thank you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.